This podcast contains explicit language. I'm sorry, mom. Everybody and welcome back to the Grape Escape podcast, the international winemaking podcast. We are really excited today to have a special guest with us. I would like to introduce you to Ray Walker, who is the author of the novel um, The True to Life Story called The Road to Burgundy. Hi, Ray. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. I'm also joined again by the trusty co-host Dan, who's joining us from British Columbia today. Hi, Dan. How are you? Great, Molly. Thanks for having me on. Anytime. Thanks for coming back. So, as I mentioned, uh, Ray Walker is the author of The Road to Burgundy, which is a memoir of his transition from his career in the finance world in California to moving to Burgundy in France, of course, if you don't know, uh, to make wine. So, first of all, Ray, this is a very exciting story. Um, Congratulations on your move and on the book. Um, I think Dan will agree with me when I say that the book was a very enjoyable read. And maybe the best part is that it was approachable not only to people like myself and Dan, who are in the winemaking industry, um, but also to people who don't know a lot about wine. Uh, Maybe on that note, could you tell us a bit about the response to your book? Yeah. um, First of all, I'm I'm glad you guys enjoyed the book. It's uh, it's one of those things where the the way that I make wine, it's very, um, very simple, very, very direct. Um, so there's not much of my personality necessarily that, that goes into the wine, but, um, to, to put together my, my thoughts and to, to share my, my feelings about the journey that I've had and, and why I've, I've done it. You know, it's, um, it's really cool to have people connect to it. Yeah. So the, the responses have been great. Um, it, it was really surprising. You know, it's, it's one of those things where, I, I wanted to be a writer. That was, a, that was like the first dream I ever had. And to to have people listen to those things and say, hey, look, you know, I was going through uh, some adversity in my life and uh, and I, I found some motivation or some inspiration in, in your words. Uh, I don't know. It's a really cool thing because, you know, when you're, when you're going through things yourself, it's easy to feel like you're you're alone in them and to think that your situation is unique. But when you when you convey this experience with other people and you get down to the the basic emotion of it all, you know, that, that a lot of us share, it's cool to see that, you know, so many other people had um had similar feelings or similar uh, trials and tribulations or um the pursuit of of just trying to push yourself, you know? Um so I, I saw a lot of that which was a which was a really um, fulfilling thing for me, and it's, it's really motivated me to, to continue writing. Oh, that's great! That's great. I can definitely see that um, 
it's not just a book about winemaking. It's about sort of a personal journey and making a big change in your life. So yeah, mm-hmm. I'm glad that it's, it's reaching readers on sort of different levels. Was it really important to you to include a lot of winemaking details? You talk specifically about, for example, uh, when you're hand sorting the grapes and what to look for. Did you do that with sort of um, intention? Did you interject those things with, with um, some education in mind? Yeah, um, you know, the, the thing is, I, I didn't know who would actually be reading the book. And I had so many people, for example, that had uh, came to, to find my wines based upon uh, articles in the New York Times or Bloomberg or, you know, what have you. And people would not necessarily know um, details about winemaking. I didn't know who was going to find the book or, or what their, uh, their reasons would be in, in reading it. So I wanted to make sure that Instead of being ultra technical, I just wanted to make sure that people got a good sense of what went into the, the winemaking process and just how, how simplified I made it. So they would, they would catch some of the gravity to, to see, you know, why I was so surprised that the wines are actually, uh, good. And, um, and I think to, to see how that happened, uh, because so many people, they, they, um, think that wine is this mysterious thing that you have to be a, a wine student or a master of wine or something like that to be able to understand or appreciate. And I didn't want to demystify wine, but I wanted to I wanted to have in there something for people to relate to and they could understand that, you know, anybody can make wine. Hmm. I guess that kind of leads uh, us into our next question. I mean, it's an incredible journey and it's really, really interesting. And, you know, you should be incredibly proud of yourself, especially that you found success in the winemaking world. But this is, you know, um, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, myself and my co-host have gone to um, to school for winemaking and have had, uh, you know, uh, maybe too much education. I mean, I think we're the first to admit that, that you can get too far into the science of it. Um, but it's really incredible that you, you know, basically with one harvest under your belt, were able to jump into making wine from arguably the most prestigious grapes in the world and, uh, and that you were successful at it. So do you think that um, now that you have a couple of years to look back on it, do you think that going into it with no education and no experience is something you would do again or recommend to others? Or do you kind of wish you had a little bit more um, winemaking knowledge before jumping into such a big endeavor? Oh, um, I mean, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I don't think I've been asked that before. Um, <laughs> I mean, the thing is, um, yeah, I, I feel very, very fortunate to have, um, I guess the, the combination of thoughts that, that put together the, the process of, of how I wanted to make wine. As well mm-hmm. as the, I guess the intuition that that led to certain you know things happening, because a lot of the stuff that I uh, I I do as far as my winemaking, it's kind of um, by by way of just figuring things out and you know one decision leading to you know another, and with that there's a lot of things that just naturally I had my ass saved. Um, <laughs> without you know getting getting burned or having uh, a hard lesson uh, taught to me as far as the winemaking aspect of it. So I, I love how I make wine because I was able to to dumb everything down to make wines exactly uh, the same way, no matter where uh, the grapes come from. 
and that's that's really important to me, especially when I'm spending this much money for for grapes. It's good to see what that real difference is instead of just hearing this vineyard should be like this, this vineyard should be like that. Um, it's good to where I had the uh, the hands-on uh, educational uh, aspect of what the vineyard could actually produce. So for sure, I would um, I would do it the same way. I don't. I don't know that I really learned anything over over seven seven vintages um, mm-hmm. as far as wine making um, wine making aspects. Um, I just I've just uh, refined um, what what I've set out to do, and I've been a little bit more um, able to control things because I've I've been able to calm down and understand the pacing uh, that's involved, and I know what to look for. Uh, so if I know what to ask help for with uh, with volunteers and, and things like that, but it's I, I don't think it's anything that I could have learned at a at a wine school at all. Mm-hmm. No, that's that's a that's a cool perspective. I get the impression just from your answers to the first couple of questions, your winemaking is very like zen like almost, and uh, comes from yeah. comes from like a, a yogic um, sort of place. It sounds very. Um, <laughs> uh like meditative it's cool yeah i mean don't get me wrong i'm not doing downward dog in the in the cellar yeah um, why not come on <laughs> i do <laughs> i'm not doing that anywhere actually but <laughs> no, i mean it's 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 one of those things where i've i think to to learn uh things i've i've always been probably more clever than intelligent <laughs> and uh i probably i pride myself on that but with with wine i think i just I wanted to strip away uh, all the things that were um, that were just, I guess, beyond what was necessary. And I, I think that it was, it's important when trying to discover um, anything and trying to really understand anything globally is to get down to that root um, thought, that root emotion, that root process. What's actually necessary to make this turn from grapes over to wine? And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I know it's cool. It's cool to be able to see what can happen if you just get out the way, you know, and just, and just let it happen. Yeah. I like that a lot. I like the idea of stripping it down and, and yeah, getting rid of some of the, the stuff that, you know, may not be necessary. We, we sort of in, in our lives in general, we, we seem to be adding more and more things. Uh, so for those that haven't uh, read the book, I'll just mention that, you made a Grand Cru wine, uh, a Chambertin. And uh, I had a question for you. Were you ever the victim of any envy of other winemakers or jealousy uh, from your quick rise to good fortune uh, to make a Grand Cru wine, either in Burgundy or winemakers, you know, from California that were upset with you or something like that? Oh, man, that's tough. Um, <laughs> I'll, t- I'll tell you like this. Um, yeah, I've, I've learned I've learned quite a bit. I mean, like I say, not on the winemaking side of it. I don't I don't mean that in like a, a facetious um, yeah. way. You know, it's like I've I've just been kind of you know doing doing the best that I can. You know, as far as I I am proud of it. Um, but on the administrative side, man, I um I definitely. Bit off more than I could chew with uh, with selling um, direct worldwide and having you know almost 500 clients each year that I'm that I'm selling to and doing so without any um, 
any kind of employees or anything like that. And so I've definitely had a pushback from that with shipping delays and, you know, things like that. And, um, yeah, once, uh, once the wine started coming out and, uh, started having, I guess, really, really good reviews mm-hmm. coming from, um, from the critics, I had a lot of people that are just like, no, this is impossible. How are you actually making, uh, wines like this? You know, um, you can't go from, you know, working at Merrill Lynch uh, in finance to, to making some, you know, some of the best wines in the world. Mm-hmm. And no, you can't do this. You can't do that. No, it's impossible. And yeah, I mean, I, I didn't hear this in Burgundy. I only heard it in, uh, really, um, with winemakers coming out of America. Yeah, that's maybe interesting. One and one, <laughs> one that's in like, uh, Southern France. And, you know, it's one of those things where, um, I feel a lot of winemaking, you know, quote unquote winemaking yeah. is, uh, it's taking the grapes and, um, trying to find a result at the end, you know, one that you're, you're saying, look, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that with, with this in mind, um, that I would like to have the resulting wine, you know, show this characteristic or, you know, or otherwise. And so for me, I don't, I don't do that at all. You know, I just, I want the grapes to not be screwed up. I want there to be some good wine at the end. Yeah. And I want to be as uh, as simple as possible in my process uh, so I can actually see what's so special about these grapes. Um, and so being hands-off and, and all these things dealing uh, with uh, gravity and, you know, all that stuff, for example, I've had um, not to give any any weight to, to what some fellow said, but um, basically, I didn't want to use um, I didn't want to use any pumps to to pump out my tanks um, during the harvest and, and get the, the the barrels filled um, down below. Mm-hmm. So I figured, why not just use gravity? And so you know, I have a couple of videos up where I hooked up all these hoses and not having to use gravity or you know not having to use electricity or any other um, types of equipment, just putting the, the hose up you know directly into the tank and the other side. And, you know, with a barrel with a with a little pistolet um, on the other side of it, and depending on how smooth the uh, the line is for the hose, that basically increased or decreased um, the the speed of the the flow rate. And so, uh, man, I had a, a couple of winemakers on me. No, it's impossible. That's not how gravity works. And it's like, hmm. I, I understand you're saying that. I know you went to school for this, but it's like I'm the one that's lifting up this hose. And here's the video, by the way. Um, and you know, it works, you know, but I had people, you know, that would just question me and, um, want to badger me, uh, on things. And it's like, look, I don't, I don't, I don't want to argue. I just want to make my wine as simple as I, as I, as I wish. And, you know, this definitely did, uh, rub quite a few people, uh, the wrong way, but it was mainly, um, American winemakers. To, to be frank, you know. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. It reminds me of the story um, where you had, uh, I think, you five guys came over to your cellar as you were getting on a plane and carried the last barrel down the stairs into your <laughs> into your new cellar. That was that that made me giggle a little bit. Because um, yeah, sometimes oh, yeah. it's yeah, sometimes it's as easy as just like you got to get things from one place to another, and what's the best way to do it? That was a great story. Yeah, for sure. Um. 
so you you do i mean obviously still have very strong philosophies about you know minimal intervention with winemaking and just making it as simplistic as possible which i really respect when you have the time and the and the ability to do that but i wanted to ask if you've had any issues with that um particularly i know 2016 was a pretty hard year in burgundy from what i've heard you had some frost and hail and then you know some associated disease so you have issues like that do you have to adjust your winemaking a style at all or do you just simply reject any grapes that look suspect how do you deal with how do you deal with a hard year well 2016 i didn't i didn't have fruit because of the lack of uh i guess the lack of crop there wasn't too much so a lot of people ended up keeping their fruit this is the first year i hadn't made wine since 2009 but to answer your question yeah the, the good thing of what i've been able to do as a as a negociant and, and buying the, the fruit myself and making the wine is that I can choose which fruit goes in and which fruit doesn't, you know? And yeah. so, yeah, and, uh, what's considered a hard year, usually I think um, that that just means that there's not uh, even ripening throughout all the vineyards and all that, you know? And what I've done to, to combat that is just throw out grapes, you know, and um, it's it's never been about how much wine that I've, I've made. I, I've rarely had a situation where... Um, I could make five barrels uh, worth of wine, and I take the fruit, and I actually end up with five. Usually, if I'm supposed to make five, I end up with four, three and a half, or you know, something like that. Because I'm I'm making decisions also to use a, a wooden vertical press that's uh, that's not electric, and to where it's not it's not that efficient. But I think that the quality of the wine that comes out is is actually better. So I, mm-hmm. I do a lot of these a lot of these things where. Financially speaking, it's 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 ridiculous. Nobody would do it if they had half a brain. So I ended up picking this philosophy because it's a um, it's a it's a it's a question about pride and um, the the legacy that you're that you're keeping, you know. And, and so for me, I I make my adjustments by um, just knocking down how much quantity that I make, just getting the best grapes as possible. Yeah, that was one thing I didn't know about Burgundy was that they sell grapes to you um, by the barrel, basically. So how much they think, how many barrels they think that amount of grapes will give you. And the thought that immediately jumped to mind is, do they account for the amount that you'll need to top your barrels throughout the couple of years that they're in barrel? Yeah, you must. You must. It, it makes know. sense that you would end up with with less. Um, that's that's actually a point of contention for for many people because um, as a as you know for topping up. Um, you know, a lot of people are, I don't know, they're, they're not so careful as far as what they used to top up the barrels with. And I'm really sensitive to that, not in the, not in the aspect of, uh, or, or not through the consideration of, um, okay, well, if you put in 2% of another wine, it's going to affect the wine. But I know that it's, it would be, it would be something that's, that's really hard to be able to distinguish. But for me, knowing that a wine would be altered in that way, makes me uh, very adverse to, to doing anything other than actually putting the marbles to to displace the, the liquid. Uh, but when you're when you're in Nibesion in in Burgundy or any other place, yeah, you get 330 kilos of uh, of grapes, and that should work out to a barrel. Sometimes it could be a little bit more. Sometimes it can be a little bit less, depending on the amount of solid to uh, juice ratio. Um, but there are people also that are just buying a barrel of wine, which I've never done. 
uh, for for Maison Milan for my for my business. Uh, but what do you do in that situation where you just get one bill, a neat bill? What do you do to top up? Well, you have to put in other lines, and people don't really discuss these things. But just imagine, you know, if just imagine if three or four percent of your um, your hamburger instead of it being a cow, now it's like part dog or you know something like this. It's like you may not be able to distinguish it, but it definitely is different. So I, I take the same approach with my wine. That's super interesting that you're that you're able to talk about that and and be honest about that because it's I think it's an issue all around the world, but especially in Burgundy where flies are limited. There's not any extra wine to go around. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting and interesting the, issue there. The decision of whether you're you're topping your Grand Cru with your Village wine or the other way around, you know, would potentially make a you know, maybe people can't tell the difference, but certainly to the to the producer, are you declassifying your wine or are you are you sort of bulking up your most expensive wine? Yeah. Yeah, I mean for, for me it's uh in, in certain of these situations, you know, I didn't want to mess up the wines, you know? And uh, I worried. I worried about somebody, you know, tasting the wines because you have to understand that when when I had people tasting my wines, my Chambertin, my Chambre Chambertins, the people tasting the wines had more experience with those wines, um, the vineyards, than I did. So I would, you know, have people over for tastings and I would just look at them just like, is, is this good? I think it's good. What, what, <laughs> what do you think, you know? And, you know, people would tell me they're, you know, say like, okay, this is reduced or, you know, this is whatever. And, um, it was an education for me as well, but I didn't. I didn't want to risk the um, uh, the situation of somebody not liking the lines or somebody liking the lines less uh, because I've done something to it, you know, regarding topping up with something else or um, even having too much uh, new oak or something like that. Or you know, I wanted to. I wanted to just be as simple as possible to not mess with the lines as much as possible and give myself every every opportunity to actually have a wine that was able to live up to those appellations, you know? And um, it's not like a, a, a false humility. It's none of that. You know, it's just frankly, I didn't want, I didn't want to screw anything up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's more being terrified than anything else. Exactly. I would I would feel exactly the same way, I have to be honest. Absolutely. So, I Ray, um, I'll jump in here, Molly, the the next question yeah Yeah. when i've sort of uh chatted with some of my wine geeky friends we've gotten into some philosophy discussions and i feel like there's kind of two camps although there's certainly other opinions but uh some people sort of say these french wines like burgundy are the reference point to which you should compare kind of all other wines of the world um, especially if you're talking Pinot Noir or Chardonnay or something like that. And then there are some folks who sort of say, you know, you shouldn't compare wine regions. If you want to make Gevry uh, Chambertin, go to Gevry Chambertin. And if you're in Central Otago, make Central Otago and be proud of that. You know, you shouldn't be mm-hmm. sort of comparing it all, all the time. Would you agree with either of those two opinions or do you have your own philosophy? Um, I, I think I'm of the, the mindset where um, I think you should be most proud of where your own two shoes are uh, situated in the world. Um, it, it's always struck me as odd, if not inaccurate, to say, yeah, I'm making a 
lines in uh, Santa Cruz Mountains, for uh, for an example. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's just like Burgundy. This one's just like Juan Romano. Yeah. This one's just like Zerachon-Bertin. And it's like, man, it's 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 BS. It's marketing. You want to sell your wines. Um, say say in some situations, uh, the they're going to say, well, like, um, I'm trying to use it as a reference point. But it's like, well, you're looking at a completely different uh, continent, and I think as a as a wine lover, especially if you're if you're somebody that's looking at terroir and, and actually giving a care about where the wine's actually grown, I don't. I want to know that a wine tastes like where it comes from. I don't want to to taste something from America and have it taste like the terroir of of a completely different continent. That would make no sense to me. I would say that that's a, a failure. Um, for that, for that wine, in, in my eyes. Um, so when people are, I guess, interested for marketing or, or for um, maybe pride reasons, they're, they're looking to to make a comparison. Um, I think that they only hurt themselves by bringing in uh, a wine from another region. It's it's like um, for me, it's 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 like saying, oh yes, well we're I know we're we're making Bentleys here, but. You know, this is actually really similar to a Jaguar. And it's like, well, your Bentley should be a Bentley. You know, and your, your Jaguar should be like a Jaguar. Um, just you want to compare it just because this is a really good product. And I've, I've made that argument many times before that you never have someone in Burgundy saying, yeah, this is just like a true cinema toast. And it's like, it's not a, it's not a put down on, um, on these regions. It's to say that French winemakers, you know, it's like we, I think we, be more easily generally uh, can see that every place has an ability to make great wine and that the best you can really do is to is to showcase where the grapes are grown and to let that be on display rather than trying to um, pull claim uh, from from another place that's making great wine it's hurtful to your own product you know really absolutely absolutely no um, arguments here I don't think you disagree either Molly. <laughs> No, I don't. Absolutely. I totally agree. Terroir is, you know, a sense of place that should be respected. That kind of ties into another question that my co-host Caitlin wanted me to ask you. She can't be with us today, unfortunately, but she um, is from California and she's currently working in Sonoma, but also has experience in Napa. And from when she was reading your book, her comment was she kind of feels the same way as you um, or as you, you know, sort of iterated in your book that Bordeaux is, uh, you know, a little bit overdone and Napa, Napa is a little bit overdone. Um, and she said, you know, her comment was, I'm not sure if it's a winemaking thing or a variety thing. Um, maybe she just doesn't like, you know, the Bordeaux varietals as much, but perhaps it's just the manner in which they're made that she doesn't like that. They're, you know, so much, um, new oak and, and, and just kind of, yeah, just kind of manipulated a bit too much. So I guess two questions stemming from her comment there. Um, do you think that Bordeaux and Napa can make wine that you enjoy and that you agree with the philosophy and that you think are great? And also, um, has your philosophy changed at all since you first sort of got into the industry? No, I, I never change. I, I um, <laughs> <laughs> no, for, for me, I, I, I take, I took, uh, some liberties with, uh, with things and things about Bordeaux in the book. And I don't know. I've, I think my, my main rights with Bordeaux, um, are things such as, you know, you can have one vineyard in one place and, um, and a satellite vineyard elsewhere. And all this can go 
into one one estate wine. Mm-hmm. And so when you're when you're mixing terroirs like that, and then when you're mixing um, the grape, um, the different grape types, you just I don't know, it's, it's, it's hurtful to what makes me excited most about uh, a wine. That doesn't mean you can't drink the wine and enjoy it. You know, there's a lot of stuff people do with wines. I'm just like, there's no way in hell I'd do that to a wine. But when I'm drinking the wine, it's like, okay, it's actually good. So there's, um, I'm of two minds with, with those kinds of things. But to, to pull back to, to what your colleague was saying, uh, for sure, I think that those grapes, um, just by way of the culture that's surrounding them. I think that people are commonly um, over-extracting and um, doing doing things with new oak, not just using high amounts of new oak, but also doing things to impart um, more of the oakiness or some of the, um, the other characteristics that come by using uh, the new oak. And so you don't get these with other, uh, with other regions as much as you do with Napa in Bordeaux. So they make for an easy, uh, an easy target for people such as myself that just like to be, you know, hands off and, you know, appreciate those kinds of wines. Yeah. Uh, but I do think, I do think that it's possible to make uh, great wines uh, from those regions. And um, I'm actually counting on that because I have a, a few projects that, you know, that I'm uh, floating around, uh, which include, you know, being in, in a couple of those regions. Uh, where normally they would have a blend and I would not um, have a blend myself in my project. And I would be using no new oak and I'd be doing things very much so in the same manner uh, that I do in Burgundy. So the short, the short answer is yes, <laughs> I can enjoy wine from everywhere. Even, you know, even outside of my, my dogmatic uh, viewpoint. But yeah, I think that there's a lot to be gained um, in the pursuit of trying to dumb things down as much as possible, take away the the winemaking and just get to seeing how these individual terroirs are themselves um, with one grape, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough my studies to be able to spend um, a month in, in Bordeaux and I showed up being like, okay, really, like Bordeaux, I don't care. It's overpriced. It, you know, everything I've tasted is overextracted and way too tannic and way too much new oak. And I just, I don't, <laughs> prove me wrong, you know, but, but I had no interest in the wines and uh, I just thought they were a little bit overhyped. Um, but then when you sort of dig into it and you're able to spend time there and go to smaller producers that focus on their own grapes and really, you know, sort of, try to make wine simplistically and really respect the terroir. And uh, there's, there are beautiful things coming out of Bordeaux. There are beautiful things coming out of Napa as well. You just kind of have to look for those producers that respect the grapes. So yeah, I agree with you there. There's great wine being made everywhere. And, you know, even if somebody's doing something uh, different than what I'd like, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, if, if someone enjoys it, then the wine, then the wine is successful. Um, but for me, to, to move beyond that, if you can, if you can just, I don't know, see what what makes it special um, with the land and uh, with the grape uh, itself. I mean, it's that's cool as well, you know. Yeah. So getting back to the the book, uh, the road to Burgundy, I I was sort of fascinated or impressed at the beginning 
how you went from being a non-wine drinker, almost even disliking wine, to so quickly becoming a wine geek, or at least in the book, it seemed like an almost an overnight transition. Um, maybe in reality, it was a little, little longer. And, uh, you know, that's certainly encouraging for uh, us who work in the, the wine business, because it means, okay, it's, it's possible to, to sort of get more people on board with this thing that we love. Um, and I was just wondering if you had some thoughts about um, what the industry could do to make that transition for people easier, or if it should be doing anything, or maybe you just want to talk a little bit more about your experience. Um, you're, you're saying to, um, for people that are maybe not, not huge fans of wine to become obsessed people, such as myself. <laughs> yeah. Or even just yep. casual drinkers. Um, okay. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting. You know, a lot of the culture surrounding wine, especially for, um, Americans, you know, it involves these fancy glasses and a certain etiquette and, this vocabulary. In a lot of ways, people uh, approach wine very much so as, as a sport, you know, where you're trying to guess this wine and really lying on your palate. And this guy has a great palate and, you know, this person doesn't. And, you know, it's, it's one of those things. And I, I think, um, I try to do my, my, my part, um, you know, as well as I can, you know, when I, when I meet people, I'll be on an airplane and, you know, I'm always chatty, you guys can tell. Um, <laughs> but people will say, oh, what do you do? And it's like, oh, I make wine. Oh, my God, I love wine. What kind of, you know, wine do you make? And it's like, Burgundy, they're like, is that, what is that? And it's like, <laughs> <laughs> there's this thing where, there's this thing where people are interested in wine. They're excited by wine. Uh, but so many people are, um, they have the, the, the moon uh, deflated by people that do have some of the information or do have uh, some passion. And they say, well, what, tell me your favorite wine. Well, you know, it has to be a, has to be a Parker 90. That's, you know, it's like, and, and frankly, I, I just say, so a lot of, a lot of men are, are, are the worst part of the wine drinking culture because a lot of this is like, who's is bigger, uh, name this wine. And it's, it's pretty much akin to just pissing on a wall, you know, and seeing yeah. the farthest. It's, it's really unfortunate, um, that a lot of people are dissuaded from, um, from a natural, uh, interest in wine. And they're, they're thinking that you have to speak a certain way. You have to be able to spot a certain wine. Um, and that, you know, some people naturally just have great palates and those are the good people in, they're most likely not one of those people. And so you get a lot of people that try to drink a wine and they're just like, they have their own internal impressions of the wine, but then they're just like, I don't know, like, what, what do you think? And it's just like, for me, that's really, um, it's hard to digest, um, for me because I think everybody should be able to, you know, say what they like or what they don't like. And, and whatever that answer is, that's, that's mm -hmm. the truth. You know, and you have so many people that want to um, make wine this mystified thing that only a certain um, collection of people understand. And it's really unfair. And it's really, um, it's, it's really made out to be this um, exclusive thing. But, but it's, um, it's actually the opposite. It's a very intimate thing. It's a very inclusive thing. And I think that the wine industry, people that, 
not just um, people that are selling wine, but the, the consumers as well. I think they would do well to to share with other people how great it is to get into wine, how easy it is to uh, to enjoy wine. Um, that there is no one master palette, and you have to name these descriptors in this list. And if you don't get Chinese nutmeg that's been warmed up in between some virgin thighs, if you can't smell that, you know, it's like, who gives a shit? The wine is still solid. You're still enjoying the wine. And, you know, people, people that, that understand um, that they're just enjoying it. And this is not a test. It's not a fucking test. Yeah. Um, yeah. If they can, uh, I'm sorry, I don't know if I can no, test, you can but do. I do anyhow. You know, it's not a quiz. It's not for some guy with a red, you know, ascot to tell you how many you got right. You know, and it's just like, um, so <laughs> yeah. many people feel like they can't drink wine. They'd rather drink beer because there is no test at the goddamn end of it. You just burp, pound your glass, and that's it. But yeah. with wine, it's like people expect that you have to be some scholar to to appreciate it and it's like no you can the cool thing about wine is that it can be anything to anyone at any time any place and you can i mean we've all had these experiences where you know you're with someone great maybe with a great girl or you know for the women out there you know whoever whatever whatever your preference is you're out with you know um you know somebody you're enjoying your time and you're with a with a wine and you're enjoying it you don't know what the hell's on the label you don't know how much it costs or some dick in maryland how many goddamn points he's given to the damn thing but you just know that the wine's good and that's all that matters you don't have to then go and, and say you know i really enjoy this what do you is this actually good or am i full of shit and it's just like if more people got that that you can drink wine in a classroom while you're studying it you can be on an airplane, you can be by a river, you can be, you know, home, you can be with a bunch of friends out, and there's all these different ways to enjoy wine, and it doesn't have to be this stuffy thing that a lot of people try to make it into. If people just got that and said, you know, I don't need this $50 crystal, you know, glass to, to drink this thing out of, I can drink it out of a plastic cup, or I can drink it, you know, whatever. If people got that, they'd be much more close to to understanding why. Mm. But not many people want to take that jump. Yeah, I think that uh, your 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 pissing contest analogy perfectly describes why I never had any interest, nor will I ever have any interest in getting into the sommelier game. That is so not something that interests me to show up to a, a very fancy restaurant with a group of very wealthy people and. Uh, and try to say the most interesting things about this $700 bottle of wine. <laughs> That's something that turns me off completely. So maybe, um, maybe this doesn't, maybe you don't have the answer to this question then. Um, but the second part um, of Dan's question was, do you remember what the wine was that you were drinking in Italy the night that you changed your mind about wine? No, all, all I know is it was, uh, it was red. There was a whole lot of it. It made the food amazing, and uh, I know I'll never be able to taste anything as good as it. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's that's all that matters. Yeah. Yeah. What region that's were you in? Um, I was in the I was in uh, the testing. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I mean, in all likelihood, oh. it was probably a Sangiovese based wine, I guess. But 
Who knows? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And the thing was, most likely, whoever made the wine was, I mean, he or she clearly loved what they were doing because there was so much um, so much pleasure in the wine. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I don't know, it's, it's, it's this funny thing where I've always tried to have fun when I'm making my wines, and it's kind of a, it's a celebration, you know, because wine is, if you have any grapes, and you're you're already you're already in a good position, you know. Yeah. And it's a, it's a celebration, and I've never wanted to be this guy that takes myself really seriously, um, and you know, basically making wine in a lab or anything like that. And everybody has to wear white suits with white <laughs> gloves, and you know, basically tell everybody else how they're so damn good at what they do. It's like I think when you when you make wine and you take the stick out of your ass and you just relax and you just breathe in the, the pleasure of it, uh, that that shines through in the wine, you know, and um, it doesn't make the wine better or worse or, or anything like that, but you put love into what you're doing and there's this intangible um, resulting aspect to what you lay your hands upon. And it's just something that's there. And so with this wine, for it to trans, make so much of a transition for me to being, from being this person that really had no interest in wine to making me this fanatic, this obsessed person that, you know, loves wine so, so deeply. I mean, just to think there must have been so much energy and just pleasure and light in this wine. And, you know, I, I hope to give that to to somebody, you know, in the future. That's great. Um, this might be a good time to ask you. Um, we always do a segment on our podcast that we call Wine or Wine, where we either um, recommend a wine or whine about something. And I feel like we've done enough whining about things today. So um, do you have any wines that you'd like to recommend Um people try whether it be from burgundy or just something that you you've had recently that you really were uh, excited about do you have any recommendations for us well um i would say for me um i think i would just recommend that people try if they're going to be um opening up their wines earlier uh which seems to be something that people are doing nowadays especially because the high cost of uh, wine to to get into the the collecting and and all that um a lot of people are are drinking their wines really early if you're going to drink your wines early i would suggest that you for example if we're looking at a burgundy uh, instead of opening up grand cruise and premier cruise all, all that stuff early um to to open up like a bourgogne or a village or something that's not so special um, as far as the classification um, level. So um, instead of recommending a specific wine, I would just say across the board, um, let your wines age and basically put in some cellar protectors by by having some wines that you know are going to be more approachable at an earlier age and potentially give you more pleasure earlier on. Totally agree with that. Dan, did you have any other questions you wanted to throw out there? Um, Well, you just mentioned briefly that you have some other projects coming up um, elsewhere. Did you want to talk a bit about what's next for you? Well, (laughs) well, I've I've already started uh, the second installment of uh, of The Road to Burgundy. 
currently currently doing that. I'm I'm working on um on a book that's basically um has me traveling around the world, um, doing food and drink, um, really trying to get to the uh, the core of the of the subcultures that are involved. Uh, you know, with making whiskey and um, fishing and trying to do uh, do things to become like a person that can basically travel around the world and so that they have experienced the food uh, and the drinking culture on a deep level and to the point where I actually understand what the hell I'm doing and what I'm what I'm actually trying to convey um, when I'm speaking about these foods and these drinks. So it's, um, I have this book that I'm writing on that and also a, a television series that I'm shooting and that goes hand in hand with that. There's going to be a lot of me uh, falling off of equipment, a lot of me burning fires <laughs> trying to cook. The thing is, I'm, I've always been more um, enthusiastic than than actually precise, you know. So I'm, I'm a very uh, clumsy person. So um, it'll be it'll be good television. So I got that going um, <laughs> with wine. Looking at I'm uh, doing something in Bordeaux as well as in uh, as well as in California, so um, we'll see we'll see how that works. You know, um, that's exciting. And uh, and will you be keeping the name? Will you be keeping Maison Elan um, in your in your upcoming winemaking project? No, it'll it'll be something different. Um, okay. You know, it's really cool. I have I have uh, three three little ones, and you know the um, the first uh, child I have is Bella Elan. I named Maison Elan after her. And, you know, now that the kids are getting older, she's just like, yeah, you know, it's, it's my wine. And, it, and <laughs> I, I would like, I would like for the other ones to be able to have, um, the same kind of a pleasure, um, of seeing their names on, on bottles and, you know, that kind of thing. So, you know, so who knows? Plus, Ray is a crappy name. I would not want to put that on a bottle. <laughs> so, so, um, it's like a Welsh name. It's like, yeah, no one wants to drink Welsh wine. So <laughs> not going to have my name on the bottle anytime soon. So. That's funny. And, and just to, uh, so people can find it, what was the name of your television series? So it's, uh, it's currently shooting. Um, we're, we're actually, uh, the, the working title of Insatiable. I've, I've been told that a, a few people are taking the piss out of it because it's a, uh, I guess it used to be a name of a famous porno from the seventies. <laughs> uh, undeterred, undeterred. I think that this is actually going to make me keep the name. Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be insatiable for, for at least the, the, the near future. Um, so I'm shooting pilots and, and all that stuff and trying to get stuff out, but we already have interest from some pretty big players. That's awesome. That's so exciting for you. I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to following that and uh, and yeah, keeping track of your progress. And um, for the title of your second book, maybe you should go with the road from Burgundy. <laughs> 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 as you as you travel uh, to other places of the world, that'd be cool. Uh, and you know, you don't have to credit me with that. That's fine. Just just a suggestion. <laughs> if I use it, I don't have to, I don't have to pay you any royalties. Okay, we have to. Do- no, no, no. No, that's um, well. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you, Ray, and really appreciate you taking the time. And um, hopefully, we'll be in touch, and maybe we can do a follow up in a year or so and see see where life has taken you because you're you're leading quite the journey there. I'm really I'm really excited for you. I'm doing my best, and uh, yeah, for sure. There's there's a lot of stuff I'm doing. There's a lot of uh, transition 
um, that I'm going through right now with putting everything together and putting um, putting a team in place. One of the things we didn't touch on in this was that you know I was I did all of all of this without having employees in place and taking a lot of heat, um, you know, for things that I definitely should take heat, you know, for. And a lot of a lot of those things could have been remedied by asking for help, by putting a team in place, help by having a proper business plan. Um, <laughs> now I have those things in. <laughs> I have those things in place, and I think a follow up would be good to show how um, how the plan has been executed and and all that because it's up until this point it was basically like um, just living out a dream, and the reality is that. While this is a dream, it's still a business, you know. So, yeah. So I, I appreciate you guys having an interest in what I'm doing. Yeah, uh, you know, keep on doing your, your thing as well. Yeah, yeah thank you. To... Yeah, we really, really enjoy it, and we're we're lucky to be able to speak with interesting characters from all around the world. So, thanks for being a part of it. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, guys. Shout out to Richard Andel. Thanks, Richard. Hey there. If you're still listening this far into the podcast, you must really enjoy it. Please follow the Grape Escape podcast on Instagram or Facebook. Send us some likes and comments there. You can also subscribe and rate us and leave comments on iTunes or subscribe on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Cheers.